Welcome everyone to episode 124, Mutations and Palpitations. I'm Dr. Kiki here with Dr. Dalen James, and this is the Stem Cell Podcast. Okay, everyone, welcome back to the Stem Cell Podcast brought to you by Stem Cell Technologies. Thanks so much for tuning in once again. How is it going over there, Dalen? I have palpitations in my own heart. I'll tell you, it's not just because I love Joe Wu, another idol of mine, but we're going two episodes in a row that are cardiac. Be still my heart. That's so right. I'm very bum, excited, bum, Kiki. Bum. I'm very psyched. I'm hearing the boom. That's right. The boom and the beat. We are in the midst of it. And there is so much neat stuff going on right now. It's stem cells and cardiac science. We're going to learn a bit more in the show today. So let's get down to business. Make sure all of you check us out at stemcellpodcast.com. You can subscribe to our newsletter there and also find all of our past episodes and other great resources. Follow us on social media too, at Stem Cell Podcast on Twitter, Stem Cell Podcast on Facebook, and you can subscribe to this very podcast on iTunes and Stitcher so that you can download new episodes automatically every time they are posted. We do have an amazing, heart-pumping show for you today. In addition to the latest science and stem cell news, we have a wonderful guest. Today, we are talking to Dr. Joseph Wu from Stanford University, a pioneer in using iPS cells in personalized medicine. Yes, Kiki. Yes, yes. I can't wait to talk to this guy. He's one of the godfathers again. You know, he's been in it. He grew up in it. He's really taken it. To the limit. But before we get into that, I want to talk to our listeners. Do you guys have trouble keeping current with all the publications and news in your field? Let us help you. Muscle Cell News, that's what I'm talking about, it covers all three types of muscle cardiac, smooth, and of course, skinny skeletal. It's free and keeps readers current with the latest peer reviewed publications, industry news, policy, events, and jobs in the muscle cell research field with a hand-curated email sent right to your inbox every week. Subscribe to Muscle Cell News and the rest of Stem Cell's 20 weekly science newsletters at stemcellnewsletters.com. All right, Kiki, I can't wait to get into this interview, but first, you got to round up some general science news. Get on with it, girl. All right, let's talk about the big news in science. Really interesting and big news in gene therapy. The FDA, the U.S. Food and Drug Administration, on August 10th approved a drug, patisseran, patisseran, infusion of a drug. Its its name is Onpatro for the treatment of peripheral nerve disease, polyneuropathy. It's caused by hereditary transthyretin-mediated amyloidosis in adult patients. Now, you might be going, what? These are a lot of big words, and what's happening there? Well, really, the big news here is that this is the first FDA approval of small interfering RNA treatment. RNA interference drug. This is something that has been used by researchers for years and years and years in study how genes work to block the action of genes, to silence them. But This is the first approval of a new class of drugs for the treatment of diseases. And this particular disease affects about 50,000 people worldwide, otherwise known as HATTR. 
It's a very rare condition, but it is characterized by the buildup of abnormal deposits of protein fibers, amyloids, in the body's organs and tissues that interfere with how the body functions. And the protein deposits most frequently occur in the peripheral nervous system, which results in a loss of sensation, pain, immobility in the arms, legs, hands, and feet. These amyloid deposits can also affect the functioning of the heart, kidneys, eyes, gastrointestinal tract, and treatments have generally focused on symptom management, but not actually treatment of the disease. And on Patro, this new drug is designed to interfere with RNA production of an abnormal form of a protein that's called transthyretin, TTR. And by preventing TTR from being produced, the drug can help reduce accumulation of these amyloid deposits in the periphery. And so symptoms, therefore, become improved and patients live better lives. So FDA, you're approving some really interesting new drugs here. This is very exciting that the FDA has approved this. It granted the application through fast-track priority review and breakthrough therapy designations. On Patro also had an orphan drug designation. And additionally, the efficacy of this drug was shown in a clinical trial involving 225 patients, and 148 of them randomly got the Onpatro infusion once every three weeks for 18 months. 77 were randomly assigned a placebo, and the Onpatro patients had better outcomes on measures of polyneuropathic symptoms compared to those that had the placebos. On Patro treated patients also scored better on assessments of their ability to perform daily activities compared to placebo. So we have a small cohort of patients who did better in a study, orphan drug designation for this rare disease, and FDA through fast track review has approved the first RNA interference drug, small interfering ribonucleic acid. You know, I remember everyone was talking about siRNA, siRNA, and then it kind of went away. But obviously, it didn't go away. That's how it is. You start sleeping on a thing, and then suddenly the FDA approves it. I wonder, is this fast track thing? Is that like when it's working so well in the small group trial, so effective that they're like, forget that. We, it's, it's only ethical to, to like just approve it. Is that what that is, or it's just because it's orphan drug they? fast track. I don't think it's just because it's orphan drug. This is a new policy with the FDA over the last couple of years that they are trying to mm. move drugs through the review process more quickly because instead of having five or 10 years of review, mm. maybe you can have one or two and get to helping patients faster. Well, it worked in this case, and I bet we're going to see a lot of these siRNA-mediated therapies coming through the pipe pretty soon. Yeah, it's very exciting, but yeah, we'll see what ends up happening. Moving on to other drugs that are out there. Anti-cancer drugs in a new study in science translational medicine could potentially help protect against liver damage caused by acetaminophen overdoses. So in this study, researchers poisoned mice with acetaminophen. And acetaminophen is known to cause significant issues with the liver with at overdose levels that kill liver cells. But the use of these experimental anti-cancer drugs, it actually prevented the liver cells from going into senescence and heading toward death. 
Drugs also widened the potential treatment window to counteract the overdose. So right now, doctors have to counteract an overdose within four hours or mice will die. But these experimental drugs worked even 12 hours later. And so now from the mice, hopefully this will move on to clinical trials to verify whether these liver rescuing results work in humans or if it's just a mouse situation. But overdoses from acetaminophen, products like Tylenol and other medications that contain the compound, occur more than 100,000 times a year and are the leading cause of acute liver failure. So if we want to reduce liver failure, I mean, seriously, liver transplants, the donor organs, there's a shortage out there, people. If you can avoid liver failure, let's avoid it. Let's try and watch out for that liver failure, guys. Yeah. Quit drinking. So, stop drinking (laughs) with your acetaminophen. (laughs) The anti-cancer drugs work by blocking a signal from a tumor growth stimulating protein, TGF-beta, which gets activated by inflammation that's provoked by the overdose. So it's interesting that acetaminophen, which is supposed to be an anti-inflammatory, actually provokes inflammation in the body when in uh, certain compounds or at overdose levels. And so if it's unchecked, the TGF-beta sends a stress signal that ends up killing the liver cells. And so if we can keep that from happening, blocking that signal, we can protect the liver. That's some good work. Although, you know, it's one of these things where the things that kill us are the things that are everywhere, right? The ubiquitous, you know, acetaminophen is the problem. Is there a cumulative? Because they always say that you take too much aspirin long term, too. It can have a negative effect. Or is it only chronic acute, you think? I mean, there are different things. There's the suggestion that small amounts, the baby aspirin dose is good for you. Larger amounts of aspirin Mm. over time are bad. So there's probably a dose response curve for some of these things over, you know, at various points in time. Yeah, but we do know acetaminophen is probably one of the worst in terms of affecting liver function. Not that any of them are great. I take my anti-inflammatories every once in a while. I'm like, oh, my joints, Ah, my back pain. (laughs) You know, but I try not to take them every day because it's that long-term daily use that we don't really know exactly how good or bad it is. Fun fact about me, Kiki, I could count on both hands the number of times I've taken acetaminophen or any NSAID. Isn't that crazy? I do the ibuprofen. Yeah, I don't, even that. I never take the pills, but I, I definitely drink too much, so I kind of cancel that out. <laughs> well, it's good. At least you're not doing both in combination. Balance. Balance. That's right. It's all about the balance. Oh, speaking of balance, we have spoken many times about Zika on the show, and There is a new report out from the CDC published online August 7th in Morbidity and Mortality Weekly Report looking at children exposed to Zika infection while in the womb. And they looked at the health of these children that were at least one year old who were born in Puerto Rico and other U.S. territories and exposed to Zika while in utero. Overall, 14% of children exposed to Zika, about one in seven, are harmed in some way By the virus, nearly 1 in 10 of the 1,450 babies that were examined developed neurological or developmental problems like seizures, hearing loss, impaired vision, or difficulty crawling. According to Peter Hotez, a pediatrician and microbiologist at Baylor College of Medicine in Houston, he was not involved in the report, 
congenital Zika virus infection is quite serious, even beyond just microcephaly. And we're still getting our arms around the full neurologic spectrum of illness that's related to Zika. The report found also that 6% of babies in the study had at least one birth defect caused by the virus, such as defects of the eye or brain or microcephaly. And that's fairly consistent with what's been seen in other countries. And uh, the data come from the U.S. Zika Pregnancy and Infant Registry, which has been set up to monitor pregnant women with Zika virus infection and the health of their babies. Hmm. Uh, Zika. Just when you thought Zika was sleeping on us. But I mean, has there been a, a lapse in the number of diagnoses, do you think, with Zika? Or it's just people have gotten bored with all the coverage? No, I, the spread of the disease has slowed. So it, either there is immunity within the populations where these mosquito spread disease has popped up. So either there are antibodies floating through the population and things are working themselves out or it's just not spreading for some reason. Yeah, so it is slowed. It is not continuing to be the kind of outbreak that was seen in 2015 and 2016. But those children that have were exposed to it and are continuing to be exposed to it in utero are going to be experiencing health problems. And so it is, and there will potentially be future outbreaks of Zika. And so we need to be prepared for the ongoing medical and health-related costs to the various populations that are affected. Right. Anyway, oh, Zika, what are we going to do? Well, cells have figured out some really cool things. Now, signals leading to cell suicide, apoptosis, move through cells, populations of cells. They spread from cell to cell, and groups of cells will die like dominoes falling. They all fall down. <laughs> How does Ooh. this signal spread? If it were diffusion, this signal would take a really long time. So researchers have been trying to figure out what's going on with these waves of apoptotic signals. How do they spread? And so recently, researchers published in Science about the African clawed frog egg is what they looked at this particular apoptotic signal. These cells, they can kill a whole group of these frog's eggs in a fell swoop. The signal travels like a wave from cell to cell to cell at a rate of 30 microns per minute, which is pretty rapid. I mean, it doesn't seem really fast, but it's pretty fast. The findings resolve a debate about whether these death signals spread by diffusion with cell signaling molecules working their way across a cell or as self-regenerating trigger waves. And the result of this particular study says that similar to action potentials in a nerve, what is happening is a trigger wave potential that is spread from cell to cell to cell. So they have actually determined that this process is a, a triggering wave, a chain reaction that occurs much more quickly than diffusion can work. I'm still trying to figure out how fast 30 micrometers per minute is, and I've gotten this far. <laughs> it's, it's two millimeters per second, okay? You guys do the rest of the math, but it's not as slow as it sounds. No, it's I not, at, and especially at a, you know, cellular resolution, it's pretty quick. 
Yeah, well, I mean, just for reference, the speed of light is about 30 trillion times that speed. <laughs> but, but you guys do some math. It's probably faster than some old people you know walk. I'll tell you that much. Most likely, yeah. Well, anyway, this cell death signal, it's quick. It happens in a very similar way to, like I said, the action potential in the cell, but it is a a wave of activation, like a wave of mutilation. Thanks. Thanks, Pixies. <laughs> oh, boy. I haven't heard that song ever, <laughs> and now I'm going to go listen to it. It sounds like a lot of fun and disturbing music. That's right. The Pixies. It's wonderful. <laughs> but what they do. That's what I've got. All right. What do you have for today's Oh, man. Up? I don't know if I can measure up. I mean, that was so stimulating in terms of all dimensions. The fact that people are figuring out the speed at which these mutilation waves of propagating death go is <laughs> really, right. it's so good. Today, though, I'm talking about one regenerative story, kind of silly, and then the rest of it is trials, trials, trials. Trying to follow up a little bit on your FDA story, except we're here in the cell game. Let me start with regenerative medicine. You know, there's this question out there that some people have. Why can salamanders regenerate and lizards can't? Yes, you didn't know that. Lizards can't regenerate, but they can, just not so well. If you take a salamander's tail, cut it. A few weeks, perfect replacement. You know, down to all the microstructures, essentially a carbon copy. Functionally, a total copy. But if you do that to a lizard, you'll get regrowth of the tail, but it's not the same of the original. It's like kind of just a, you know, a lump, <laughs> I'll say. That's not the scientific term. That's what I call it. But by comparing the regeneration between these two animals, researchers at the University of Pittsburgh School of Medicine have found that stem cells, there's specific stem cells in the spinal cord that are the limiting factor, the, the distinguishing factor between true regeneration and this bootleg lizard style generation. This was a study in PNAS, and it answers this long-standing question, maybe a stepping stone to understanding why mice and other mammals can't regenerate their tails at all. Why? Well, I'll tell you that the traditional animal model, this is a quote, okay, from Dr. Thomas Lozito, assistant professor, uh, lead author at Pitt Department of Orthopedic Surgery, quote, the traditional animal model for regeneration is the salamander. Okay, salamanders can regenerate a wide variety of tissues, brain, heart, parts of their eyes, limbs, tails, but they have whole classes of molecule types and tissues that just aren't found in mammals. So we really haven't been able to apply very much of what we found in the salamander to humans. And that's the key, guys, because by looking at the difference between the salamander and the lizard, because lizards are much closer to mammals. They can say, well, this is where the capacity seems to be lost in this transition or somewhere between salamander and lizard. So looking at what the difference is there may be a template for how we can restore that type of growth and regenerative capacity. And the bottom line is what they found by using this kind of transplant system, which is pretty cool, is they had a basic question. Is it the growth environment? Is it an extrinsic factor, the tail of the lizard? and the wounded tail is not amenable to regrowth, or is it that the cells in the lizard tail are not capable of regeneration? Is it a cell intrinsic deficit? And what they found 
by transplanting these stem cell-like cells from the tail of a lizard into a salamander and vice versa, they found that salamander cells that were transplanted to the lizard tail were able to generate all the cell types. So it wasn't the growth environment. In fact, it's a defect or a deficit or a shortcoming of the cells. The lizard cells aren't capable of forming all the cell types that the salamander, neural specifically, neural stem cells form. And in particular, the lizard neural stem cells from the tail can only become glia, which don't process mm -hmm. the messages that direct movement of feeling. So essentially, they're not true neural stem cells. A true neural stem cell can self-renew and generate the whole repertoire of derivatives, but these lizard stem cells are kind of not unipotent, but they're restricted in their differentiation potential. And this explains why they make this imperfect tail. They're not able to make all the constituents. And I feel like the next stage here is to see, can you get these neural stem cells to differentiate to cells other than glia? Can you restore this regenerative phenotype? And this is a story coming down the pipe. That'll be a big one. But that's where they yeah. ended, just showing that it was really a cell intrinsic defect. Pretty cool. I feel like part of this is very similar or parallels a lot of like human spinal cord neural regeneration, where we have, you know, humans have issues regenerating those neural cells, right? You have damage to the spinal cord that damages the neurons and they just don't regrow. Like the stem cells aren't there. And so a lot of the work to, you know, get spinal recovery has been trying to figure out how to get these neural stem cells to work and to connect to each other. And so I'm wondering, you know, what is it about the amphibian, the salamander versus the lizard? You know, what happened during evolution? You know, mm. at what point did that signal get turned off? Yeah, that's a great point, Kiki, especially because there's a whole class of people that think the real problem with the spinal cord regeneration is that it's this inflammatory environment of the wound. And if they could mm -hmm. reduce the inflammation, then maybe they could coax the cells that are there to regenerate. But this study would kind of suggest that the intrinsic potential of those neural stem cells may be limited yeah. similarly to the lizard. So you caught on a point there. I think there was kind of the backdoor conclusions that they were making. Of course, not using human cells. They yeah. couldn't make those assertions. But I think clearly they're on that kind of thought track that you are, Keek. Yeah. You know, great minds. Think alike. Yeah, great minds. It. Great minds. <laughs> so on to the therapy. I mean, there's the there's the mechanism. There's the basic. That's how you build into translation. But the rest of my time here is going to be spent racing into translational work. All right. This first one is a little bit soft entry. It's not so much a therapy that's in trial, but it's a great new idea for how you can displace the endogenous cells in order to fix the system, all right? The example here that we're talking about is cystic fibrosis. So back in the 90s, when there was all this rage about gene therapy, the idea was that you could take genetic disease like cystic fibrosis, especially cystic fibrosis, because you could like inhale some kind of gene targeting mechanism. It would go into the lungs and it would fix all these cells and target the faulty cystic fibrosis transporter, et cetera. But the real problem that ended up being the case is targeting. You can't deliver the genes. And, and the whole mode of cell therapy that's emerging is, oh, we'll replace the cells. And this has legs too, although I think the legs are short. We'll see how long they can run. 
But the idea, at least in theory, is there and limited in the lung, mostly by the fact that it's difficult to get the cells there out of there. If you want to deliver cells, they don't engraft very well. So this was a new paradigm, a new idea. The study, which was published in Stem Cell Research and Therapy, it's called Epithelial Disruption a new paradigm enabling human airway stem cell transplantation. And the title really says it all. It's disruption that is the key. The idea was that they would take a a strategy with cystic fibrosis patients by taking endogenous cells from these patients into culture and correcting them, or a biopsy, taking a group of cells, correcting the gene, and then reintroducing them. But the key is in the reintroduction. In principle, they used two types of cells to test this, which was human airway basal cells and human amniotic epithelial cells, and they transplanted them into mouse, mind you. So this isn't something that they were doing in humans. But the real key was that they used this chemical called polydocanol, polydocanol, whatever that is, and it's disruptive. It disrupts the epithelial lung barriers, and so these cells pretty much get eliminated, sloughed off. And when this was done compared to patients or mice that were treated with vehicle alone, the mice that were treated with this polydocanol had much better engraftment. And that's the bottom line. I mean, it's not like we were looking at whether or not we were curing cystic fibrosis in a model, cystic fibrosis in a mouse, not using, you know, this in humans, but they were human cells Mm -hmm. and they were able to engraft very well in a mouse, which, you know, cross species is a lot to ask. So it looks like this disruptive approach may be disruptive in its changing the game, changing the mode of therapy in a counterintuitive way by blowing up the system before you repair it. Eventually, if you can have these kinds of cells that are from your own cells, just gene edited as opposed to from a donor, but it's a fascinating move forward. I mean, something like cystic fibrosis, find new ways to treat it, combat it. People will live much better lives. You know, cystic fibrosis is one of the most, uh, it's tough. Mm-hmm. And it's amazing how much stride has been done without cell therapies or gene therapies. But yes, it's one of those things that eventually it seems like you always die from it, not with it. So yeah. it's, uh, you need a lot of work to do there. And I'll tell you, we're getting closer because these cell therapies are popping off very aggressively, if you ask me. I was um, just going to add also that the in the mice the fact that these cells actually, the stem cells became regular cells. Mm-hmm. They incorporated this engraftment, this incorporation. Like it, That means you don't have to have multiple treatments. Maybe the cells get in there and just work. Yes, and this Except. is the promise, although I think one of the things left to do here in these kinds of studies is to really characterize the nature of that engraftment and the cell types and their function, and et cetera. That's the challenge with cell therapies. They're mm-hmm. alive. And they're unpredictable. (laughs) But that's not stopping Kyoto University. A team from Kyoto, they're trying now to apply a IPS-based treatment for anemia using platelets derived from IPS cells. Okay, so we've talked about this. They're wild over there in Japan with their, I don't want to say wild in a negative way. I mean, like, yeah, they're going for it. They're very, you know, full charge on the IPS-based therapies. We've talked about the one they're doing for cardiovascular disease. They have some RPE ones going there. There's one for Parkinson's, all enrolling patients right now. Now they're planning to begin a clinical test using platelets grown from induced pluripotent stem cells to treat aplastic anemia. So this is a team led by Koji Ito. 
They're expected to begin the clinical test after getting approval from the Ministry of Health, Labor, and Welfare. But let's be honest, that ministry, they just be approving stuff left and right. So, and the university's already endorsed the plan. So I'm expecting it to go through and expectations are high in the field of regenerative medicine. Of course, you know, this is the big idea. And because IPS cells came out of Japan, they're leading the way with trials to treat with the RPE. They're trying to treat uh, macular degeneration. Is that it? Or retinitis pigmentosa? Retinitis probably, yeah. Also the cardiovascular disease and Parkinson's, mm-hmm. like I mentioned. So far, this team, they've established, they've able to make good quality platelets. And platelets, you know, they're the factor that's important to stop bleeding. So patients with aplastic anemia, they get infections, they, blood doesn't clot, they suffer from headaches, and their platelets and white blood cells decrease. They have to be treated off with blood transfusions. But, you know, the platelets, they don't last very long on the shelf. And, you know, it's a great candidate for IPS cell because there's no immune rejection. You could take it from your own body, put it back in. And I would say one of the things that I would be a little bit more amenable to this type of trial is that platelets kind of are, you know, transient. They'll kind of get dilute out. So I'm not so worried if you could get a pure population to get in there about the platelets becoming some kind of cancer. But nevertheless, I think it's... uh, very aggressive, the idea of doing IPS-based therapy in a lot of patients, considering what Takahashi's experience with that, they had to drop that one patient. So, I mean, it's not unexpected. I would love for one of these trials to come back with some results that were positive before they started jumping off on another trial. But I understand that these innovations kind of need to run a parallel path if we're going to capitalize on them to the highest extent. I get nervous, Kiki. You know me. Yeah, well, I mean, rushing into this kind of stuff, as you said, we don't know what's going to happen once these cells end up in the body, you know, and the tests need to happen moving forward. But yeah, maybe for efficiency's sake, the parallel route is, you know, it's the best way to go. Maybe they're not rushing. Maybe it just feels like it because all these papers are coming out at once. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, I think you're right. I think you're right. I mean, these things clearly have been a long time coming. IPS cells have been in the game for over a decade. So I'm just, you know, I'm willing to admit. (laughs) An old codger. I'm a little bit concerned. (laughs) Yeah, codger. That's a good term. But I'm happy about this study. See, I go crazy about studies like this. This is a study from Bo Chen. It's a not clinical trial type study, but it's about regenerative. It's a new therapy, new approach. This is Bo Chen's group in Mount Sinai, published in Nature last week. We've talked a lot about, as I said, the RPE studies. There's this coffee study in Nature Biotech we talked about, which is impressive. I just talked about Takahashi and her work. But this is a new approach for treating vision loss. It aims to wake up the regenerative capacity of certain cells that are already in the retina. And mm. I love these types of work because, you know, they it's like, let's let the body do what it does. Let's like talk it into doing what it used to do. Let's not hit it over the head with a sledgehammer. These are cells, a cell population, they're called the Mueller glia. Mm-hmm. So in zebrafish, which is a highly regenerative model organism, as we all know, these cells act as a source of retinal stem cells and they're poised and then mobilize into action following retinal damage and produce healthy new tissue. In humans, other animals, these Mueller glia, they offer structure and support to other retinal cells, but after damage, they don't really do much. They have a weak response. It's not enough to repair the tissue. 
But of course, Bo Chen and his group, they have found a way to coax the cells into action, at least in mice. They use this two-step gene therapy program in a mouse model of blindness, inherited blind. They're blind, born blind. It's a good model of congenital blindness in humans. And they inject two genes. The first gene causes the cells to proliferate and behave like stem cells, the Mueller cells. And then the second step, it directs these proliferative populations to make them generate new Rob photoreceptors. These are the you know, photoreceptors, the things that allow you to see light. In this study, the new photoreceptors, they integrated into the existing structure of the rodent's eyes. And after a few weeks, these animals that were born blind, I remind you, they were able to see light. So isn't that like the quote? I have seen the light. Mm-hmm. This is some miracle type S. You know what I'm saying, Kiki? Yeah. And I think everyone has high expectations. If the technique makes it to human trials, I think, uh, you know, of course, the first goal would be to take patients with vision loss. But ultimately, the idea may be that you can even just tweak the system as you're aging to preclude any kind of onset of vision loss. So it's, it's I think, uh, one of these you know, maintenance type regenerative approaches as opposed to putting in stuff to fix a system that's already busted up. I love it. It's really amazing. But I mean, I'm listening to you explain this particular study, finding these preserved abilities. These genes are in there. How do we get them to express themselves? How do we get these cells to act like the stem cells that they do in older evolutionary states, right? Same thing here. I'm like, Hey, salamanders and lizard people, what are the exactly. <laughs> what are the things in there? How do we get those neural cells in the lizard to start being stem cells? How do we go the glia and stem cell route and not, you know, how do we make it work? That's exactly right. It seems like they're doing it in the eye. Yeah. Full circle. I mean, we think we're so smart. We should learn something from these lower organisms for sure. <laughs> Absolutely. I just... There are so many things like this where it's like, okay, evolutionarily, we used to have this ability. So is it that we don't have the ability anymore because of a mutation or the gene is lost and it's just not there anymore? Is it because of it's being controlled maybe by some quote unquote junk DNA that produces RNA that goes and silences the genes? You know, what is happening in there epigenetically, genetically to control these phenotypic traits? That's the question. Why do we keep losing it? Why do we lose it? Do we just lose, lose, lose? I mean, our president now, president used to be a classy guy. Humans, we're just losers. (laughs) (laughs) Losing our capacity. We used to be able to do stuff. (laughs) That's right. Once upon a time. Well, now upon a time, it is time we are done with the roundup. And it's time for us to get to the interview. But before we do, did you know that genome editing just got easier? Oh, yeah, it has. That is, if you use cloner from stem cell technologies to increase the cloning efficiency of human pluripotent stem cells, HPSCs. As many of you know, genome editing of HPSCs relies heavily on the survival of single cells to establish clonal cell lines. Cloner, C-L-O-N-E-R, is a medium supplement that works with M-Teaser-1 or Teaser-E8. Unlike current methods, Cloner enables the robust generation of clonal cell lines without single-cell adaptation. 
thus minimizing the risk of acquiring genetic abnormalities. Learn more at stemcell.com slash cloner. Cloner. Yeah. Stem- so good. That's right. Stemcell.com slash cloner. Our guest today is Dr. Joseph Wu, director of the Stanford Cardiovascular Institute and Simon H. Sturzner, endowed professor in Department of Medicine, Cardiology, and Department of Radiology at the Stanford School of Medicine. His lab works on biological mechanisms of patient-specific and disease-specific induced pluripotent stem cells, iPSCs, to first, understand the basic cardiovascular disease mechanisms, Second, accelerate drug discovery and screening. And third, develop clinical trial in a dish concepts. And four, implement precision cardiovascular medicine for prevention and treatment of patients. Dr. Wu has received numerous awards and published over 300 papers over the years. Dr. Wu, welcome to the show. Uh, Thank you, Kirsten, for the generous introduction. Thank you so much for joining us today. We are absolutely thrilled to get a chance to talk with you about your work. And so before we really dig into the nitty-gritty details, can you give a little bit of an introduction about yourself and the work that goes on in your lab? So I'm a professor here at Stanford University. I was trained in medicine at Yale University, and afterwards I did my internship residency cardiology fellowship at UCLA. Afterwards, I did a uh, PhD in pharmacology at UCLA uh, in the STAR program. And then around 2004, I came to uh, Stanford. So I've been here uh, ever since then. So when I came to Stanford around 2004, uh, we started uh, working with uh, human embryonic stem cells and the ability of human ESLs to differentiate to uh, cardiomyocytes. It's natural because I'm a cardiologist and I want to understand the cardiac development process. And also around that time, as you may know, there was quite a bit of restriction in terms of NIH funding. And so we were lucky to be able to get funded by the California Institute of Regenerative Medicine to you know, kickstart my research uh, when I was a junior faculty. And we've been involved in the human ESL and then later on when Shina Yamanaka discovered the human iPSL, we then transitioned to a human iPSL. So we've been working on it essentially since 2004 uh, until now. And so right now, most of our work, as you mentioned, has been focusing on taking these human iPSL-derived cardiomyocytes from various patients. And once we're able to take them from various patients with different diseases, we try to understand the disease mechanisms. And so we study common diseases uh, such as uh, dilated cardiomyopathy, which is the most common genetic cause of a cardiomyopathy. We study common diseases such as hypertrophic cardiomyopathy, which is one of the most uh, common causes of a certain cardiac death in young adults. And we study uh, diseases such as uh, long QT, uh, which is a very common cause of inherited channelopathy that could cause uh, cardiac arrhythmia. And so once we're able to get these uh, cardiomyocytes at a, I would say, at a large scale, uh, you can then think the next step would be to take these uh, cardiomyocytes, expose them to uh, various uh, medications, and to see whether the medications are both safe and effective. And so we've been doing these type of drug screenings uh, for common chemotherapies, uh, chemotherapies such as doxorubicin tyrosine kinase inhibitors, uh, Herceptin for breast cancer, and to see what is the effect of these uh, chemotherapies on cardiac toxicity. 
because I think, as some of the audience may know, uh, one of the effects, uh, side effects of uh, chemotherapy is uh, cardiac toxicity. So that's the second aspect of the lab. And then the third aspect of the lab is trying to implement this for what we call precision medicine initiative. That is, suppose I'm a 65-year-old man and I'm taking different kind of medications for my heart disease. How do I really know that the medications I'm taking is effective or not? Well, the truth is that you don't, and neither do the doctors. And we kind of have a guess in terms of which medication works on a population level, but on an individual person level, it's hard for us to figure out which medication works specifically for that individual. And so we believe that uh, in the future, would it be possible to take a patient's uh, IPA cell, derived cardiac cells, or endothelial cells, or liver cells, or even brain cells, and so forth, and treat it with the medications that the patients are taking, and then figure out whether the medications are working or not, and then tell the patients whether they should be on those set of particular medications or not. So this really gets into the concept of uh, precision medicine, uh, taking the medication that really works for you. So those are the three major aspects of our lab. And then the last aspect, which I'm happy also to touch upon, but which I believe is going to take much longer because of various hurdles, is to take these cells for a regenerative medicine purpose, meaning that patient comes in with a heart attack and wipes out 20, 30% of the heart and the patient has a heart failure. Is it possible to regenerate or to repair the heart by using these iPSL or ESL-derived cardiomyocytes? So that's kind of an overview of what we do uh, in our lab. So yeah, Joe, I'm glad you gave us the arc there because as you describe, well, first of all, we had Chuck Murray on the show just last episode. So good segue from your last point there of the regenerative approaches. But in what you describe going on in your lab right now, I think I can kind of glean the arc of the stem cell field kind of writ large over the last decade, decade and a half, which is, in my estimation, which is maybe not great. But I feel like there was a derivation, we forgot them, and then we were focused on how can we get, let's say the heart, how can we get cardiac cells, differentiate them? And then we, based on getting the cells, we're so focused on developmental mechanisms of cardiac differentiation and embryogenesis. And then as you have, have alluded to, we move into the disease mechanisms and the toxicology screening. But the impetus behind the stem cell derivation at the very beginning and all the way through has been this regenerative cell-based type idea. And when I see the arc of your career, I see that you've been in all these successive stages and in recent years focused very much on precision medicine, disease mechanisms, and toxicology screening, et cetera. And I know you've also been doing the regenerative approaches, but would you say that the progression of the field kind of inexorably toward this disease modeling is because the regenerative approach that it was initially lauded for has fallen by the wayside because it's much harder than we thought initially? Or do you think that this is just the natural progression, that we're in disease modeling, but we're, we're still progressing towards mostly cell-based therapies of ES cells? So, Dayton, I think those are very good questions. As I alluded to earlier, I think the regenerative medicine aspect uh, would take a much longer period of time. And mainly because it's just much, much more difficult to implement that. And there are several hurdles. You alluded to, for example, trying to differentiate these uh, iPSLs or ESLs to 
bona fide cardiomyocytes, mature instead of immature cardiomyocytes. That's the differentiation aspect. The other aspect uh, that the audience may or may not be aware is the immunogenicity aspect, meaning that uh, if I take a human ESL and inject into a patient with uh, heart failure, that human ESL came from somebody else. So that's an LGNA transplant. And that means I need to immunosuppress uh, my patients uh, with these uh, human ESL-derived cardiomyocyte. Well, the very reason that we decided to go into the regenerative medicine field 20 years ago was that we don't have enough heart transplant availability to our heart failure patients. That's number one. Number two, our heart transplant patients get immunosuppression, and we don't like that because it's tons and tons of side effects for the immunosuppression. It's ultimately, to me as a clinician, it makes less sense for me to go through the whole regenerative medicine field. And then in the end, it requires me to put the patient back on immunosuppression for the human ESL-derived cardiomyocyte. So somehow we have to figure that out, and I think uh, various uh, groups are trying to work on, for example, HLA knockout, HLA matched uh, human ESLs to avoid this uh, immunogenicity issues. Now, people may say that, well, we could then move to autologous uh, human iPSL-derived uh, cardiomyocytes or autologous iPSL-derived brain cells or liver cells and so forth. I think, you know, in principle, it sounds uh, exciting. But in reality, in terms of the financial implication, it's quite large, and mainly because think about the cost that it would require if I have a heart attack and I take my blood, make my iPSL, differentiate to cardiomyocyte, do quality control on my cardiomyocyte, generate uh, billions or millions of these cardiomyocytes, inject back into me. Think about the whole cost of that procedure probably at least a million dollars and so forth. And so you need to be able to demonstrate that procedure and that technique translates into better survival, better morbidity and mortality. You need to show that the cell transplant is better than some of the autologous adult stem cell transplant that we have. It's better than some of the medications we have. It's better than some of the mechanical devices, such as left ventricular assist device that we have. And so you need to be able to show that your method, your therapy is significantly better in terms of improving morbidity and mortality. So those are very, very difficult hurdles uh, to overcome. And that's why I stated in the beginning that, in my opinion, I think the regenerative medicine, while it's exciting, we're working on it as well. I also want to acknowledge that it's going to probably take much longer period of time and I think it's important for some of the lay audience and members who are listening to this podcast to realize that the potential is there. At the same time, we don't want to provide too much hype that they have this unrealistic expectation that they're going to get injected with these uh, iPSL, ESL stem cell, and all of a sudden they're going to be running marathon. It's not going to work that way. And so that's why I think right now the lower hurdle, the low-hanging fruit, is taking these cells and using these cells to screen for medications that are safe or effective. And then it's much easier to make these drugs and produce them on a massive scale and then be able to ship these uh, drugs. Or, and then uh, you know, hopefully some of these drugs can be used to understand or treat heart failure, understand or treat arrhythmia, understand or treat various types of uh, metabolic diseases. 
I think I just want to give the audience a balanced perspective of where the field is, at least from my perspective at this moment. You published a paper with other researchers. I think you were uh, the last author on a paper uh, related to this kind of precision medicine analysis of genetic variants that could cause cardiac disease or cardiac death, specifically, as in you mentioned earlier, this long QT syndrome. So I'm wondering if you can comment on the, I guess, usefulness of this new ability of taking stem cells to screen for drugs, to screen for genetic variants that lead to particular disorders of the heart? So that's a very important question, uh, Kirsten. It's happening more and more in clinical scenarios, meaning that, as you know, uh, the sequencing cost is getting cheaper and cheaper, probably cost right now $800,000 to get your uh, DNA sequence. There are some insurance companies, for example, Geisinger, which is a major healthcare system in Northeast, is offering free uh, DNA sequencing for some of the insured patients. I think the pilot uh, trial would involve a thousand patients. At Stanford, I think uh, there are quote unquote uh, clinics, not just at Stanford, but throughout the country that are quote unquote VIP clinics that cater toward uh, patients who can't afford to pay out of pocket to get the DNA sequence. I think those are fine, uh, but I think right now what most people don't understand is that when you get the DNA sequence, uh, the DNA sequencing allows is, is you know very good at picking up different kind of mutations, but it's also very good at picking up different kind of uh, variants. And these variants essentially are genetic sequences in which we don't know their significance, and that's why we call them VUS, a variant of uncertain significance. But recently, we had two papers. One paper I can briefly uh, discuss is uh, relates to the patient who came in and he had dizziness. And he's worried because uh, his brother and also his uncle, both of them passed out and had syncope. And their EKG shows prolonged QTC, uh, which is an interval. It kind of measures depolarization, the repolarizations of the uh, EKG. And he's worried because, you know, again, both of his brother and his uncle uh, passed out and he got his EKG done and also it shows a prolonged QT uh, interval. And we decided to do a DNA sequencing and they came back as a variant of uncertain significance in long QT2. And so that means we don't know what is the implication of that particular variant. And so right now, the current treatment or guideline or uh, common practice is that we tell the patient we just don't know what's going on. We're going to watch the patient and we're going to repeat the EKG. If the patient has uh, increasing symptoms, let us know and we'll be more vigilant in terms of following the patient. So that's what we have right now. And obviously, uh, this may not be so satisfying to the patient. So in this case here, we decided to take a uh, patient's skin and for the skin, actually the patient's blood, and the patient's blood, we converted to uh, iPS cells. And the iPS cells, we converted to his uh, cardiomyocytes. And we were able to show that uh, his cardiomyocytes have uh, quite a bit of arrhythmia, meaning that it beats uh, abnormally in the dish. And when we genome edit his uh, cardiomyocytes, we have two copies of the variant. We show that the cardiomyocytes have even more arrhythmia. When we genome edit, the, his cardiomyocytes so that his variant disappears, we showed the arrhythmia went away. And then lastly, when we genome edit uh, that particular variant into a normal person's cardiomyocyte, for example, into my cardiomyocyte, 
myocardiomyocytes I started having an arrhythmia. And it's based on those four steps, we were able to conclude that that particular variant is not a benign variant. It's probably a more pathogenic variant, and therefore that the patient should be followed more closely based on that particular uh, studies that we have. And so that's one example. And I'll quickly tell the audience another example. Another example is a patient that we saw uh, in the clinic as well, you know, 40-something-year-old man, perfectly healthy, goes to the VIP clinic and uh, decides to get DNA sequence. And it came back as a pathogenic variant in hypertrophic cardiomyopathy. And so this is, creates a conundrum, right, because the patient is perfectly healthy. And the DNA says there's a pathogenic variant that causes hypertrophic cardiomyopathy, which could lead to certain cardiac death. And so his EKG and his echo all shows are normal. Well, you could just blow it off and say that, well, you know, clinically you look fine and we're not going to worry too much about it. But this may not be too satisfying for the patient, especially if the patient is the worrisome type, right? On the other hand, you could also say that, okay, we're going to be very uh, aggressive in terms of following you. But think about how much uh, medical lead cost you're going to incur every time when the patient has a skip beat and you're going to run an EKG or run an echo just to see what's going on. And then lastly, you know, this could pop up uh, medical legally as well. Hypothetically, if the patient flies from San Francisco to Frankfurt for a meeting and develop a blood clot, and the blood clot goes to the lung, develop a pulmonary embolism, dies on the pulmonary embolism. The coroner cannot figure out what the cause of the death was. And guess what? The wife is going to sue you as a doctor and say, hey, doc, you know, you did a DNA sequence on my husband, and they show pathogenic variant and hypertrophic cardiomyopathy. And that hypertrophic cardiomyopathy, as you know, can lead to certain kind of death and arrhythmia. How come you didn't do anything to my husband? So these are the kind of cases that will pop up in the future. And so in this particular, the second case, what we did was we made the IPA cells from the patient and also from the entire family. And we showed that the patient's cardiomyocyte actually beats normally. There was no hypertrophy when we tried to induce it. When we introduced two copies of that variant, his cardiomyocytes also looked normal. And there was no hypertrophy when we tried to chemically stress it. When we take one copy, make it completely normal, his cardiomyocytes look normal. When we introduce that same variant into another person's uh, cell line, this cardiomyocytes also look normal. Again, based on those three to four steps, we're able to conclude that it's probably a false call. It's not a pathogenic variant, but actually a benign variant. And so I think that uh, although we don't have all the data to back up that this method uh, works, we believe that this is probably, you know, the beginning of an era in which uh, people will start thinking about using a combination of IPA cells and genome editing to assess pathogenicity of these of the U.S. Uh, and you will see more and more examples of this, uh, not just in the cardiac field, but in, you know, in the brain field, in the skeletal muscle field, and other, you know, in the cancer field as well. I mean, are we talking about experimentally linking? are defining pathogenic variants or that diagnosis will happen in a dish. A patient will come in, they'll give a biopsy, and then there'll be cell molecular biology going on in the lab to define the linkage between their genome and their disease predilection. I mean, is that a reality that you see? I think it's something that 
you will see investigators trying to push toward that particular area because right now, frankly, the options are limited, meaning that how you define a particular variant is based on what's been published clinically. And if nobody published, you know, if there are no case reports in the U.S. or in mm. Germany or in China or in Japan, then we don't know the pathogenicity of that variant. And frankly, a lot of people don't publish and therefore we just don't know what it is. And so right now, as I mentioned in the beginning, the option is just wait, 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 and see the patient develop any symptoms and do something. And the patient develops symptoms, we do something and we try to publish. The curation of that variant becomes more pathogenic or more benign, depending on how many publications out there. I think this takes way too long, and I think it's not uh, satisfying to the patients, also not satisfying to the uh, doctors, uh, the clinicians who are taking care of uh, these patients. I think, you know, this method probably allows you to have another angle in terms of looking at the pathogenicity of these uh, variants at a much you know, earlier time point. I think the only drawback right now is the time and the cost uh, that's involved in doing that. But you can make an argument that the time and cost uh, involved in doing that, hypothetically, if it's 20000 30000 it might still be more economic compared to leaving the patients in a limbo state uh, for the next 10, 20 years until the disease develops or not develop. Again, as I mentioned in the beginning, we don't have data to back it up that this approach is going to work. You know, we're a strong proponent of trying to push this. Additional validations will need to be done. Additional, especially the characterization of the cardiomyocytes to make it more, quote unquote, more, more mature, to be able to add additional stress uh, agents to the cardiomyocytes to simulate what happens clinically. So these are the kind of uh, areas that I think are fertile grounds uh, for research. And I would encourage uh, some of the uh, junior investigators or the postdocs in the you know, field uh, who are listening to this uh, broadcast to think about, you know, these are some of the areas that could tie basic science to clinical medicine. And these are some of the areas that they could investigate on in the future as well. I'm curious about your views on people using personal genomics. You know, there are various companies where they're able to get their children's DNA tested and, you know, these gene variants pop up here and there. Maybe it's not a doctor ordering these tests, but, you know, maybe it's just out of curiosity and a parent finds out that their child has certain variants. I'm wondering how you're interested maybe in taking these precision medicine studies of individuals of certain variants that may, you know, interact with other genes within the genome in an individual and how those might tie back to how parents and people can use this information in their lives moving forward. Yeah, so I think that's a very complicated field. I think, you know, the genetics uh, certainly gave us a lot of information because, you know, we are a product of our parents, uh, right? And what kind of disease our parents have, whether it's a heart disease, Alzheimer's, Parkinson's, a lot of that is genetic and uh, gets uh, inherited. Although at the same time, I want to make this point that is, I still believe that a lot of the disease progression, common disease progression, a lot of that has to do with environmental influence, meaning how we carry our lives, you know, whether we're obese, overweight, and exercise, and bad diet, and so forth. And this, you know, I, I want to make this point because I'm a clinician, I see patients, and, you know, I don't want the patients to come to the clinic and say, doc, this is my DNA, I'm doomed to get XYZ, or this is my DNA, and I have 
complete DNA, and therefore I could eat whatever I want, and I'm not going to get sick. So it doesn't work that way. And I can't put a specific number to it, but my hunch, again, just completing my hunch, genetics probably control 5 to 10%, and then the other 90% is probably your environmental, your upbringing, and social uh, influences, and so forth. With regard to you know some of these uh, data, I think as I mentioned uh, earlier, these variants will inevitably pop up, and so you know I think the parents have to be aware that most of the time, if not all the time, the doctors don't know how to interpret that, geneticists don't know how to interpret that, and the uh, doctors, it's geneticists or the clinics who offer these uh, type of DNA sequencing, uh, they should be prepared to provide this type of guidance and advice and counseling to the uh, parents. And uh, to be honest, I've had my DNA sequence and I had tons of variants that pop up. But again, you know, I'm a scientist, I'm a clinician. A lot of times I can kind of blow it off, but it's very different if you're a layman and you don't understand what these uh, variants mean and you have a family history of Alzheimer's, a family history of heart disease, and then you start to get worried and so forth. So just, uh, you know, keep that in mind in terms of some of the complexities of uh, uh, these uh, DNA genetic analysis. My gene sequencing has told me that I should eat a Mediterranean diet. That's healthy anyway. So there we are. Shouldn't we all be eating a Mediterranean diet? So I just want to shift gears and circle back a second, uh, Joe. You talked about the CIRM earlier, and that was a huge infusion. And CIRM was kind of predicated on this idea of the feedback into commerce, right? It was going to, innovation was going to spur economic growth. So along those lines, it seems like that's a thing in California, and particularly where you are, Silicon Valley. And I just read how Irv Weissman just had this, you know, his company, 47, just had a big IPO in June. Now they're above whatever hundreds of millions of dollars that they've raised. And I know you've got a couple companies, I'm sure, that your advisors are founder on. Is that part of kind of like, is it in the air? When you're at Stanford, is it like the expectation that you're going to start a company and have this kind of Silicon Valley thing? Or do you think that that's just generally in science now? Everybody's looking for the VC. Everybody's looking to get a company up and running. Can you address that? I think if it's in the air, I certainly hope that the air spreads to other places, uh, in California, in Nevada, Utah, and eventually uh, nationally and globally. But uh, joking aside, I think it's actually quite important for uh, physicians to figure out a way in terms of translating their medical discoveries from best to the best side. And I emphasize that because I think uh, this is something that not a lot of us are focused on. And, you know, I've been told by my patient that, hey, doc, you know, make sure your MD stands for medical doctor rather than mouse doctor. And, uh, <laughs> Refer to, uh, you know, try to advise me is that, you know, most of us are working on mouse and mouse and mouse, but then you can show that the drug, uh, you know, causes a mouse to run faster or cure heart disease in a mouse. But at the end of the day, you want to take that invention and take it uh, to humans. And be able to do that, it's actually not easy. A lot of issues involved, uh, you know, for example, if you don't have IP on a particular uh, invention, then it's unlikely to get licensed and it's unlikely to get commercialized. And, you know, I think most investigators forget to file IPs. And I think uh, these kind of things are something that's slightly different at uh, Stanford, I think, uh, because of the culture 
because of the experience of uh, many of the PIs are here. And because you're immersing yourself with other people and you're learning from them, you then start saying, hey, you know, this is the step to do it. Uh, have some kind of discovery, file IP, start uh, forming a startup company, raise money from the startup company, and then uh, do a clinical trial to show uh, whether it works or not. Granted, most of the startup companies go kaput after three to four years, but it's better to go one out of 100 a success rate than to go you know, zero out of zero because you never tried in the beginning. I think that's what's different about this uh, Silicon Valley uh, culture, not just in the biotech, but you know, as you know, in the digital technology, healthcare technology, pretty much in every field. I think there are a lot of entrepreneurs, a lot of smart people here. They try to uh, take it from the beginning uh, to the end. So for me, it's certainly a, you know, a blessing. And also certainly been, I've been fortunate to be working at Stanford to learn from many of my colleagues who are much, much smarter than I am and you know, gain my experience at that way. And hopefully, you know, one of my job is to pass on that skill set, pass on that knowledge set to my postdocs, to junior faculties. And, you know, in fact, one of the things that we do in our lab is we talk about any discoveries that we have, or any research projects that we have. I always encourage uh, the postdocs that do file IP, file disclosures. And so they go through that whole process of understanding how do you take basic research to file disclosure to get an IP uh, done. And along those lines, I would love to ask our final question of the interview. This has gone much more quickly than I expected. We have many more things I know we'd love to speak about, but we don't want to keep you too long. So at this point in all of our interviews, we like to ask our guests one last question, and it follows right in line with this, how you work and work with and mentor your postdocs and other students. What is your best career advice to young scientists in training? You know, I think it's the same advice that I gave to all my postdocs. Uh, that is, you know, to succeed in science, uh, you have to work hard, number one. You have to work smart, number two. And you have to work together, number three. So work hard, work smart, work together. And that means that, you know, no matter how smart you are, you just got to put in the time and effort to get things done. And so that's working hard. Working smart means that you got to have some good intuition smartness in terms of whether you're on the right path or the wrong path. And it's also very important. And then working together uh, means that, you know, field is getting more collaborative and not just in medicine, but in technology, in healthcare, uh, in digital, uh, in pretty much any field I can think of. There's going to be much more collaboration across uh, different labs among different universities nationally and internationally. So you got to be able to work together uh, to do uh, team science. I just gave you an example that to go from a discovery to a clinical translation, I don't care whether you're a PhD or MD or MD, PhD, you got to get help along the way, meaning that you got to get people who are savvy in patent applications, people who are savvy in the VC field, people who are savvy in doing clinical trials, people who are savvy in talking with the FDA. And that means, you know, working together, trying to uh, taking your invention uh, to the clinic. So my advice, uh, you know, to the postdocs, work hard, work together, work smart. And also, uh, lastly, you know, I know the funding is tight these days, but it's always been that way. And I think it will always be that way in the future. And I think, you know, you just have to look at it as whether your glass half full or half empty. I'm always uh, a believer that, 
we as PIs uh, should be optimistic and we should tell, in my opinion, that the glass is half uh, full and uh, encourage our uh, postdocs as a stay in science. Uh, it's important for our country to have young trainees uh, go into STEM because without this young generation of STEM, old guys like me kind of, you know, disappear and then we don't have uh, anybody to pass the baton to. And I think for our country to be strong, you got to have people who are interested in science, technology, engineering, medicine. Thank you so much for your time today. And thank you for your sharing your work and your insight into this fascinating area of science. Thank you both. And it's been a pleasure talking with you both. The pleasure is all ours. At this point, it is time for us to leave the show. So everyone out there, thank you so much for listening to this episode of the Stem Cell Podcast. Please be sure to send us your thoughts and questions on Twitter at Stem Cell Podcast or email info at stemcellpodcast.com. Don't forget to take our survey at stemcellpodcast.com and tune in for our next episode in two weeks. Daylin, Dr. Wu, this concludes episode 124 of the Stem Cell Podcast. Thank you for another great show. <laughs>